0: You know, we're in the book of Mark this summer. and We're not going to make it through all of the book. That's okay. I didn't plan on it anyways. What we're doing is we're looking at the stories of Jesus Christ. I love the Gospel of Mark. Now, let me tell you why the Gospel of Mark is so awesome. If you look at the other Gospels, and they are, they are incredible too, but the other Gospels have a lot of the sermons of Jesus. And Mark... You only have a handful of sermons, only a few of them. Mark is somebody who writes as a storyteller. Now, I love telling stories. All my children growing up, I would tell them stories before they'd go to bed, and I'd make them sometimes so scary that they would be crying, (laughs) afraid to go to bed. My wife would get so mad at me. The other night, this last week, it reminds me, this last week, Andrew sometimes will lay down for a few minutes with us until he gets sleepy enough to get to his own bed and he piles into bed he's with me Denise is getting ready and I said Andrew I'm going to tell you a story and his eyes light up and then I said I'm going to tell you a scary story first thing he says was mom (laughs) dad's trying to scare me of course he tattletales on his own father so here's what I did I'm getting a lot smarter in my older age I said well then you know what Andrew I'm not going to tell you a story I'm going to tell me a story and you can just lay there and listen if you want somehow he's okay with that so I'm telling him this, I'm telling me the scariest story. I'm scaring me, and he's having a great time. I don't know how that works in a 5-year-old's mind, but I love storytelling and I love Mark because Mark's a storyteller. It's a narrative gospel at its best. You know what else is so good about Mark? The word immediately is 42 times in the book of Mark, which means it is fast-paced. If you've got ADD, maybe a little H in there, then you're going to love the Gospel of Mark because it doesn't let up. It's constantly going all the while, and that's the way I am, and that's the way I like to read, and I love the Gospel of Mark. So we're looking at Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, and here's my goal. Listen, simple goal this summer series. I just want us to see Jesus a little more clearly and love him a little more dearly. That's all I want to do this summer. I hope it's happening. If you've been here for a regular portion of this, I'm hoping that that's happening. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus Christ specializes in opening eyes. You know, you've heard of Mutual of Omaha, right? That's been around longer than I have, I believe. Mutual of Omaha is on a tour this summer. They're going all around the nation. And they've got this silver uh, trailer behind them. And emblazoned on this silver trailer is, are these two words, AHA Tour. And what they're doing is they're going around the nation and they're talking to people that have had those AHA moments. You know, those times where life-changing insights happen. They're often unforeseen. You don't know they're coming. But your eyes get open for the first time. You ever been driving on the same road for years? And all of a sudden, you see something that you never noticed before. And it's like, how did I miss that? Do you remember Isaac Newton and the story that goes that an apple fell on his head while he was sitting under a tree? And all of a sudden, one of those aha moments, this flash of insight in Isaac Newton began to work out the law of gravity. Do you remember Archimedes? Archimedes had a king. They came to him and said, Archimedes, I don't know if my crown is really what they say it is. They're telling me it's pure gold, and I don't know if it's really pure gold. So Archimedes, you're a mathematician. I want you to figure out if my crown is really pure gold or if there's a little silver in there. Well, Archimedes doesn't know how to do this. Nobody knew how to test metal at that point. Precious metals weren't able to be tested. So he goes to the public bath. Apparently, he does his best work in the baths. And he goes and he sits down in a bathtub. And as he sits down, the water rises and goes over the edges of the tub. And all of a sudden, this aha moment occurs. And Archimedes begins to fathom the laws of buoyancy called Archimedes' Law. And in that law of buoyancy, all of a sudden, Archimedes says, listen, I've got now a way to test these metals because silver and gold have different densities and different densities are going to displace different amounts of water. The story goes, he was so excited that he jumped up out of his public bath and ran down the street to tell the king that he had solved the problem stark naked. I don't really know if that's true, but it preaches well, and you guys are actually listening, so it works. <laughs> Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night, and you've been developing the discipline that says, you know, sometimes God likes to speak to us in the middle of the night. And so you wake up, and your first thing you say is, Lord, I would like to get back to sleep, but did you wake me up for a reason? Is there something you want me to know? Are you trying to speak to me? You know, I did that this last week, and the Lord was speaking to me. Pretty profound. I got out of bed. I couldn't get back to sleep. It's about 4.30 in the morning. He spoke to me. I got up in my mind. I got up and read uh, my utmost for his highest, saying the same thing I just heard God say in my heart. Sometimes God wants to speak to us, and sometimes it's in the middle of the night that those aha moments, that flash of insight comes, and it's God birthed, the Holy Spirit prompts it, and we need to see it so that we can live our lives the way that He wants us to. Well, we're going to come to Mark chapter 8. And I told you about this. Mutual of Omaha tour and these aha moments to get you to understand and get your mind ready because God likes to open our eyes and he will do that our entire lives and he will do that continually as we walk with him and we develop eyes to see and ears to hear. We come to Mark chapter 8, you have to have your Bible. If you didn't bring your Bible, please grab one right in front of you. Share it if you need to. But you're going to need to see the text this morning. There is so much in here. So we're at Mark chapter 8, New Testament, second book in the New Testament. We get to the first five words of verse 22, which read, And they came To Bethsaida and we pause and we kind of wonder why are we pausing because what's so profound about and they came to Bethsaida well Mark is telling us this for a reason he's giving us the bearings he's giving us the compass headings he's telling us where we're at in the story of the gospel that's unfolding you see if you were here two weeks ago then you'll remember when Jesus fed those four thousand men plus women and children, he was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis region, the region of ten cities. And he miraculously feeds these people, and then he and his disciples get into their boat, and they cross to the other side, and now they leave Gentile area, that's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Listen, that's important leaves the Gentile area, and now he comes right back to the Jewish area of Galilee. And who comes out to see him and to talk to him? None other than the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like the scribes and the, the Jewish lawyers. Their job is to protect, teach, and carry forth Judaism. Judaism is the religion of the Jews. Jews. And these Pharisees come to Jesus and they demand from Jesus, listen, you, you're making all these claims about yourself, Jesus. Well, if you want us to believe you, then we want to see you do a sign in heaven right now. Look right up at the sky and do something miraculous right this moment. And Jesus says to them, no, no, I'm not going to do that for you. If my miracles that I have been doing in this region of Galilee are not enough, and my sermons that I have been preaching, and the authority with which I've been preaching it, if that's not enough, then you're not going to believe anything. I'm done. It's over. I'm moving on. And that is final. And he does. He picks up his disciples and Jesus. They get into a boat. The text says they cross over to Bethsaida. That doesn't mean they go back to the other side. Look at the map. They go north, slightly east. It's still Jewish area. It's still Galilee. And it's the village or the town of Bethsaida. It's a fishing town. And by the way, you may be familiar with it because it's where Peter and Andrew and Philip were born. You see they were born in Bethsaida and then transplanted for their career in Capernaum. Capernaum is more prosperous than Bethsaida, So they moved to Capernaum, even though they were born in Bethsaida. And you may be even a little more familiar with Bethsaida, because remember, I just told you that Jesus fed 4,000 men plus women and children on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Before that, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And guess where that occurred? Bethsaida. This town... And the citizens of this town had seen incredible miracles from Jesus and had heard incredible sermons from his lips. And yet they were rejecting him. You know what Jesus says about Bethsaida? It's famous and infamous. Here's why it's infamous. He says in Luke chapter 10, you see it behind me, Woe to you, Chorazin. Listen, woe in the Greek, is spelled just like the Jewish idiom today oy and you know what when a jew says oy they're expressing angry grief Jesus is angry. He is grieving the rejection. He's done so many miracles. He's preached so much to Chorazin and Galilee and to Bethsaida, yet the people were rejecting him. So he says, "'Oy!' to Bethsaida. "'For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, "'they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes.'" But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Do you remember Tyre and Sidon? We talked about them two weeks ago. They're up north of Galilee. They're Gentile towns. They're famous because they're incredibly wicked areas. You've got David and Goliath. Goliath is a Philistine giant. The Philistines descended from Tyre and Sidon. You've got Queen Jezebel, who came from Tyre in Sidon, married King Ab Ahab in Israel, and when she married King Ahab, Ahab, and came to Israel. She brought the gods of Baal and Ashtoreth with her. Guess what? Jezebel's father was the king of Tyre and Sidon. These were wicked, wicked areas. Yet Jesus is saying, I haven't done many miracles in those areas. I've poured myself out for you, Bethsaida. Oi, you're going to suffer when you come into the white throne of my judgment. Friends, that's frightening, because those who hear the gospel and yet reject it will find that day of judgment more severe, more terrifying, and ultimately more terrible than those who have never, ever heard the gospel in their lives. And we get to verse 22 and we get back into the text and they arrive in Bethsaida, this now infamous village. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now here's the fun and challenging part of pastoring and preaching when you're doing stories that have been read countless times. This is fairly familiar to a lot of us. How do you find something fresh? I mean, you don't want stale bread, right? You want fresh bread brought to you on Sunday mornings and you don't want to come. Listen, you don't want to come and park your minds in neutral. You want to interact. And Sometimes you're not going to agree with me. That's fine. And sometimes you're going to agree, but you're not going to like it. And that's okay, too. Because it shows that your mind's in gear. Well, your mind's got to be in gear. So let's, let's look at this story. And my job this morning, here's my job this morning. Here's my goal. My goal is to try to get you into the life of the blind man so that you feel like that blind person. See, here's a blind man. Look at your text. Whose friends bring to Jesus and whose friends beg for help on his behalf. Look what it says. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. It's not the blind man begging. Listen, it's the friends that are begging. And they're the ones that are pleading. And we might might read that and we might think, okay, well, that's interesting. Let's get on to the good part. Well, there's other stories in, in the Gospels where the blind person is the one begging. Don't you remember that, that the, on the road to Jericho, it's going to happen in just a couple of chapters... It's when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. He goes to Jericho first, and on the way into Jericho, there's a blind man, and he's sitting on the side of the road. And friends, listen, he's begging so loudly that Jesus, son of David, heal me. He's blind. He's so loud that the people around him tell him to shut up. But here in this story, we've got a blind man, and we don't hear a peep from him but we sure do from his friends. They're begging Jesus. Well, you look back to the the end of Mark 7. This is why you got to have your Bible. Look back to the end of Mark 7 and and we might think to ourselves, well, what's so odd about this, Tim? I mean, look at that man there. He's deaf and his friends are doing the same thing. So why, why are you belaboring this? Why are you bringing this out? Well, look at Mark 7. That guy had a speech impediment. He couldn't speak. This blind man today, he can speak. He's about to speak in a little bit. The guy in Mark 7 couldn't speak. He couldn't beg for himself. So his friends are begging on his behalf. We've got a guy today that could speak, yet not a peep is coming out of him, but his friends are imploring and pleading Jesus. Now, let's bring this down a little bit deeper. You've got to know this if you're going to be a student of the Word of God. You ready? Old Testament... All the way through to the New Testament, blindness is a spiritual metaphor for being shut out from the light of God. Blind people are metaphors for people that have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. They've not yet had the light of the gospel, the Messiah, shine into their souls, and they're living, Isaiah brings it out better than anybody, they're living in spiritual darkness, stumbling from point to point in this life. And so what we've got here in Mark is what we've always had, week after week. This isn't about a blind person, most centrally. This is about a real blind person, but it goes beyond that. This is about Jesus and the gospel, and the gospel brings salvation, and the gospel brings eternal life. This is about salvation. And it now makes us ask, do we really... Beg Jesus on behalf of our blind friends. Those friends who have not yet put their trust in Him. I mean, let's be honest with this. Are you imploring Jesus? Are you pleading with Him? Are you begging Jesus through prayer? Would you please move in my friend's life? Open his eyes. Open her mind to understand and see the glory of the gospel. You know, love is fun to preach, and it's really cool to define. There's only four Greek words for love. It's really not that hard. It preaches well, but love is very, very difficult to live. You want to know what love looks like? You're seeing a perfect picture of it. It's we plead on behalf for those who are friends of ours who are blind, even if they're not even asking for help. Listen, you might have a friend that has no interest in salvation. You might have a friend or a loved one that's not even crying out to God. You still cry out to God for them. You bring Jesus to your friends and you bring your friends to Jesus. That's what love looks like. And we're seeing a perfect, perfect representation of it with this blind man's friends. But let's go a little bit deeper into the world of blindness. You see, in the ancient days, blindness yielded one job. If you were blind, you had one career in front of you. And the career took place beside the gates. You see, the gates were in the walls of every walled town and city, and the blind people sat by the gates because that's the closest proximity to all of the traffic coming in and out, all of the merchants coming in and out. And here's your career. you didn't even need you didn't need experience and training and a degree for it. Your career was begging. That's all you would do as a blind person. Listen, they didn't have braille. They didn't have laser treatments. They didn't have corneal transplants. They didn't have seeing eye dogs. They didn't have technology that we have today. There's one job, and that's it, pleading and begging for help. Your life was at the mercy of other people. They didn't have caseworkers that were there to get you a job. And if you were blind, listen, there was no cure for you, none, They didn't understand the pathology of blindness. Possibly if you suffered a head injury and you were blind as a result of it, they knew something about what caused it, but there was no disease pathology awareness. They had concoctions for you that would claim to heal your blindness. Here's one of them that would take rooster blood and mix it with honey and smear it over your eyes. So it wasn't uncommon at all. In fact, blindness was prevalent all around the area in Jesus' day. It wasn't uncommon at all to go and see a blind person with eyes with crusted over dried salve with flies swarming so badly that they stopped trying to shoo them away. By the way, you go around the world in third, country, third world countries today, you'll see the same sight. There was no cure, but here's what the Jews developed by way of a perception of blindness. Now, you ready? This is so interesting. You're going to so climb into the the shoes of this blind man. People were blind, the Jews taught, the Pharisees authorized. They were blind because they had done something so bad that God cursed them with sightless eyes. Don't you remember Jesus and his disciples? They're walking along and And here's the disciples, there's no compassion in them. Even though they've been around Jesus for this long, there's no compassion. They start talking to Jesus about this guy that's on the side of the road begging. The whites of his eyes, he's sightless, flies are swarming. And they ask Jesus, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. You see... The view of Judaism, the religion of the Jews, was that if you're blind, it's because God has struck you with that blindness because of your sin or your parents' sin. So here's the Pharisees, here's the rabbis of Jesus' day. They wouldn't even touch a blind person. Chris, let's say you're the blind man and I'm a Pharisee and I came into the sanctuary and I saw you sitting there, I would walk all the way across that sanctuary wall and I would sit as far away from you in the back corner as I could because I called you, along with my fellow Pharisees, literally, quote unquote, the untouchables. That was the name for blind people. You don't touch people that God has cursed. You don't show them compassion. Why would you show them compassion? God is not yielding any. If God has withdrawn his compassion, you're to withdraw your compassion. And this is the world of blindness. So we've got a man who's blind. There's no cure. He's got one career and it's begging. And all of the religious leader's perception was that he had done something so bad, either he or his parents, that God has cursed him with blindness. And they would not even touch him. So get to your text in verse 22 and watch the tremors of the gospel unfold. They arrived in Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now look what happens in verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand. Now friends, listen. You've got to have a little tremor going through your soul right now. You ought to be feeling a little bit of goosebumps coming up on your skin because this never happens. You don't touch blind people. Jesus, this isn't some fly by fleeting touch of the hand. He takes the hand and he holds this blind man's hand and he walks him, leads him out of the village. The text says, don't you love that? Don't you marvel at what Jesus is like? There's nobody he won't touch. And this blind man who would never be touched by a rabbi is embraced and enfolded by the love of Jesus. And maybe, now listen, just think, like the blind man, maybe, maybe the first hurdle of faith in this man's life was that God, maybe he really does love me after all. And maybe while Jesus reaches out his hand, listen, you're blind. You don't see the hand of God extended. You feel it when he grabs you, but you don't see it coming. What a surprise that this rabbi would take your hand, and he's not letting go. And he's walking me. And while he's walking this man, listen, I'm sure I can see this the, the lies and the misperceptions and the mind of that, mind bl- that blind man beginning to unravel. And all of a sudden, light begins to come into his mind. God does love me. And he takes his hand and he guides him away from the village. I, I'm not really sure why. I've got a couple a couple ideas. One of them is that when you're blind, your, your body shifts to the other senses. Your hearing typically becomes more acute. So he gets him away from the commotion. But I don't really think that's the real reason. It might be part of it. But listen, I do think it's more along this line. I'm going to give you a couple more reasons. I think it's more along this line. I think that... Salvation is always you and God. There's no herd mentality of salvation. There's no group of 30 people that all come together and in one split moment, all 30 of them come before the Lord and become saved. It's always God and you individually and personally because you are loved by God, not the crowd loved by God only. You're loved by God. I think he leads him away from that village, at least for this, to begin walking him out of what the village was a metaphor of, and that is the world. God walks us out of the world. He takes you by the hand when you're living in darkness, and he walks you out of the world, and he brings you right to his throne of mercy so that you can see his beauty and his glory and his love and put your faith in him. Part of this is certainly Jesus walking him out of the world. But let me give you one more perspective. Now, we've talked about what it's like for the blind man. Let's look at a different perspective. Let's look at the disciples. Let's look at this through the eyes of the disciples. What was Jesus doing for them? Remember a few minutes ago, I told you that the Pharisees, they had come to Jesus and they were demanding that he would give a sign to them. And he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't give them a sign. Now, listen, this is horrible what I'm about to tell you. That was it. Listen, this miracle that we're looking at today, listen, this is the last miracle in Galilee. It's done. Jesus is leaving Galilee. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to die in a few months. And the the curtain closed on Galilee. Act 1 is done. You know what Act 1 was? Now listen, this is so important. Act 1 was His ministry to the multitudes, to the crowds. But that curtain has dropped. And Act 2 begins, and that Act 2 is all about His ministry. Now, peculiarly and particularly with the disciples. This is the church. And He's got to open their eyes. He's got to get their, their faith strong. Act 3 is going to be in Jerusalem in a few months. He's going to be on the cross. And then Act 4, he's going to come back from the dead and ascend to his Father. But we're we're at the end of Act 1 and the curtain is dropping Fast. And so we've got the disciples that now are shifting into Act Two. Jesus is doing something in the lives of these twelve and he's pulling them away from the village, away from the people because a curtain is dropping and it's time now for the disciples to have intensive training. And friends, I'm going to tell you and I'm going to show it to you. This miracle is more about the disciples than it is the blind man. And let's see how we can see that. Look at verse 23. Look what happens next. Jesus spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. He spit. Now listen, the text indicates he spit directly in the man's face right onto his eyes. Now, why? I mean, before he spits on the ground and he mixes a little bit of a mud and he puts it on a different blind man's eyes and heals his eyes, before he spit on his fingers and he puts it in the guy's ears, Mitch Kowalski this morning said it was a divine wet willy. I have no idea where he gets that stuff. But he opens the man's ears. Now he spits right onto the man's eyes. You ever been spat on? I have, when I worked in residential psychiatric work, it was horrible. It's dem- demeaning. It's humiliating. About the angriest I've ever been when these kids would spit on you. But he spit right on the man's eyes. And some people, some people try to explain it this way that Jesus had to f- wash away all of that dried, crusty secretion. Before he could heal the man's eyes. Listen, this is, remember, this is a metaphor for salvation, and Jesus doesn't need to clean you up before he saves you. I get people all the time saying, Pastor Tim, I do I do want to be saved, and I do want to put my faith in Jesus, but I've got a couple habits in my life, and I've got to stop them. I've got to clear them up, and then I'll come to Jesus. And I'm always telling him, why? Why? He wants you just the way you are. He likes you the way you are, and he will change you. He will rescue you. He doesn't need to clean his eyes before he heals them. But why would he spit on the man's eyes? Well, it's going to leave you with some mystery because I haven't really heard a really clear explanation of this. But I will tell you this. It was the belief of the day that spittle contained supernatural healing properties. By the way, when you burn your finger and you cut your finger, what's the first thing you do with it? Well, maybe we're not so modern after all. But it was the belief of the day. Spittle has divine properties. Now listen, let's look at it this way. Who's the one begging for help? It's not the blind man. It's his friends. And there's no evidence that this man's faith was alive. None. The friends bring him to Jesus. The friends beg for him. Jesus takes his hand, walks him out of the village. There's something that's got to jumpstart this man's faith. And if it's going to be the superstition that spittle contains divine properties, whatever, it's going to jumpstart your faith in me, then let's get it rolling and let's get it going. Because faith has got to come alive. Whatever the reason, we don't know, the text doesn't tell us it's never seen again. Whatever the reason why he spits on the man's face, here's what we do see. We see never before seen two-stage miracle take place. It's never happened before and it's never happened since. Not in the the ministry of Jesus. It takes place in two stages. Look what happens. He spit on the man's eyes and asked him, verse 23, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. That's a clue. He wasn't always blind. He knows what trees look like. Something happened to degenerate his vision. And he could see something, but he couldn't see anything clearly. So here we go again. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Isn't that peculiar? I mean, did Jesus make a mistake? Did he just not do something right the first time? Well, listen, if your faith is where my faith is, you know that the perfect Son of God never makes a mistake. So what's the reason for this two-stage miracle? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But I think we can speculate safely. In order to do that, and this is why you need your Bibles, look at, look at verse 17 with me. Right before this miracle takes place, Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Now listen, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Are your hearts hardened? Listen, these disciples had been with him. He's, he's over, he's two and a half years into his ministry. And these disciples had been with him more than anybody. They've seen all that he has done. They've heard all of his sermons. And yet they still could not see clearly. They could not hear clearly. Something has to be done to open their eyes and open their ears. You know, it's it's almost like when in Mark 7 that he heals that deaf man. It's almost like Jesus is performing a, a hearing test on his disciples. And then when he heals his blind men, it's like he's performing an eye exam on them. It's like Jesus is this, this divine ophthalmologist, and they're, they're the ones getting the exam, the disciples. And look what we're about to see. Look at verse 27 in Mark chapter 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he said, or he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Listen, that's another way of saying, what do people see in me? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And he's like an optometrist. And and the disciples got their face up to the machine and Jesus is saying, okay, look at the wall, look at the letters. They get smaller as they go down. Tell me what you read. And we got Peter who in verse 29 says, in an aha moment, I know who you are. You're the Christ. Listen, you got to think like a Jew. You're the Savior. You're the long-awaited, promised one. You're, you're God. You've come to save us. Listen, you've come to rescue us from Rome. See, the Jews hated Rome. The Jews were God's chosen people. They weren't supposed to be subject to anybody. Their God was the one God, the God Yahweh. And here's Rome that has come in in a superpower of the day and conquered them and made the Jews their servants. The Jews hated them. And they were conquered because they refused to stop worshiping other gods and idols and going astray from God in spiritual adultery. So God said, if that's the way you want to go, then I'm going to make you a slave to your idols. And here comes Rome. And so the Jews had this massive conception that the Messiah was going to come and the Messiah was going to lead the Jews free of any other control of any other nation. And they were going to be the superpower group of the day. And that's not why Jesus came. But they should have seen it. Their eyes should have been opened because Isaiah had told them all about it in chapter 35. He said, he will come, God will come and save you and look what's going to happen. Here's how you know when God's with you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All of these have happened in the gospel of Mark, but nobody can see it. Until Peter finally says, I got it. I get it. I see it. You're the Messiah. You know what Jesus does? This is great. He says, Peter, excellent. Now go down to the next line, the one with a little bit smaller letters. And can you read them back to me? And in verse 31, we see this. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Mark, make sure that we know that Jesus said this plainly. There's no mystery. There are no parables. There's no hidden meanings, meanings to this. And here's what Peter does. He says, hey, Jesus, listen, hold on. Time out. Come here for a second, will you? Let's have a talk. Stop talking about death. I just said, you're the Messiah. Remember, you came to save us and you're going to lead us free from Rome. We're going to be the Jewish nation again like we used to be. We're going to be the most powerful nation on earth and God is going to be glorified. And now you're telling us that you're going to be rejected and killed. Stop. People are going to leave like they did. Don't you remember John, 9, John 6? Still talk about that anymore. Peter rebukes God. The text says he rebuked Jesus, the son of God. You see, here's the point. Peter could see, but the Messiah was like a tree walking around. He couldn't really see clearly, could he? He couldn't really see the purpose of the Messiah who came to not be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die because God loves us so much that he's willing to die for us. And he did so that we would love him so much that we would live for him. Don't you get that ironic, profound paradox? He loved us and died for us so that we would love him and live for him. See, I can see, Peter says, Jesus says, but you don't yet see clearly. So let me open your eyes some more. That's all of us. Friends, we're all the blind men. All of us. You may no longer be in sightless spiritual darkness. You may have had your eyes opened and you trusted Jesus Christ for your Savior. But listen, there are aha moment after moment coming your way. It's called sanctification theologically because you're going to be remade more and more in the image of God and your mind will be renewed and your eyes opened wider and wider. You see... And I see, but we don't see clearly enough. But we have a God, his name is Jesus, who knows how to open eyes. And he's doing that in the disciples, and wait till next week, Lord willing, when we look at the transfiguration, you're going to see eyes wide open. Do you see Jesus? Now let me ask you personally, listen, it's just you and me right now. Do you really see Jesus? Do you see God who climbed into organic material called flesh just like we wear with blood coursing through his veins who cries out in pain when he hits his fingernail with a hammer just like we do and gets skin abrasions when he falls and plays as a child and grows up and grows in wisdom and grows up having perfectly, listen, perfectly obeyed all of God's law. Something we can't do because, listen, you and I, you know this is true. You know this is true. You have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God. You know there's course through your mind, terrible thoughts, and some of them you've acted upon. And you've done things that you wouldn't want your mom to know about. And you've done things that you hope your children never find out about. You know you've fallen. And there's been a breach, there's been a gap between you and Holy God because holiness can't intermingle with sinfulness. It just can't, it's a law, it, it's a gap. And you poured into that gap all your church attendance and all your self-efforts of improvement and all of your good works. You've poured it in, but it's a divine cosmic sinkhole. It all sinks out of sight. Nothing can bridge that gap except for one object. It's the cross. And on that gap, God in the flesh, the person of Jesus having lived perfectly as the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus says, I will die in your place so that you can live in my place. He climbs on that cross at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Friday. And three hours later, the Bible says darkness came over the land. That was the awful, awful time of the cross listen it was bad enough you take a railroad spike like we have today except finely tapered it's about the same size drive it through not the palm it can't support medically the weight of a body through your wrist crushing the nerves sending and spiking pain signals to your brain and back over and over over and over both hands both wrists and then taking one foot putting it over the other and right through the ankle right into the wood of that cross. And then remember that, listen, the problem on the cross is not inhalation, it's exhalation. You can't breathe out unless you lift up and push up. And every time Jesus spoke from that cross, all seven times, he had to pull up on those wrist-spiked Hands and push up on his nail-spiked feet just so he could get air out his diaphragm through the vocal cords to enunciate words. And not once on the cross is there a record of pain coming from the lips of Jesus. He didn't cry out in pain until noon. And noon he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God took a cup that was filled to the rim with your sins and my sins. He took that cup and he poured it out right on the head of Jesus. Just like the Old Testament priests would take the blood and pour it onto that scapegoat. He took the the sins of all of us and poured it right onto Jesus and holy God couldn't look upon his son anymore because he carried our weight, the weight of our sins. And he turned his back on Jesus That's what the word forsaken means. Your eyes open to that. That's how much God loves you. You, no matter what you've done in your life. That's how much he loves you right this moment. And he would do it all over again if he had to. Thank God, literally, he doesn't. One time's enough. The moment you put your trust in him, that blood that dripped down off of his feet and off of his hands and off that cross, that blood, you're plunged beneath it by faith and you come up out of that whiter than snow. And guess what? That breach is bridged and you've got peace with God the Father. That's why Jesus came. That's what we celebrate in communion every month. And guess what it does when we celebrate it every month? One More iota, your eyes are opened. A little bit more, you see a little bit better why Jesus came. And a little bit wider, you see the incredible love of God for you. And here's what it does. It begins to kill your pride. It kill your self-sufficiency and your self-righteousness. And you walk out of here every month after communion a little bit more thankful and filled with gratitude at God who loved us so much he died for us so that we would love him so much we'd live for him are your eyes open to that if they're not friends can i encourage you abstain from this don't participate in this this isn't for you you have no part in this what you should do is marvel at maybe what jesus is doing at this moment as he's taking your hand and walking you out of the village and he's getting ready to open your eyes. If you have had your eyes open and you have put your trust in Jesus, you are welcome to this. Let it do its job and kill your pride and leave here even more in love with your Savior. Amen. As the worship team comes back up, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much. Father, for your grace. Thank you so much for your willingness to die in our behalf. Thank you so much for what we are about to do. As we celebrate this ordinance, as we again reflect on your incredible love for us. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would continue to open our eyes and change us, make us more and more like your son. And let us walk out of here more humble, more excited, more in awe of your compassion and your mercy, your grace and your love. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.